George Mueller, who was born in Germany in 1805 and died in 1895. He pastored Baptist Church in Bristol, England for 66 years. And when you summarize his life, you will find that there were staggering achievements in his life. He founded 117 schools. He founded a missionary organization, distributed tracts and books. And he was most of all known for the orphanages that he founded. It is said that during his lifetime, he cared for over 10,000 orphans. All of this while pastoring a church for 66 years, preaching three service Sundays or services on a Sunday, on a, in the week, and caring for the flock of God. When he retired, or we thought he was retirement at 70, he decided to take up missionary work and become a missionary. And he spent the next 17 years traveling to 42 different countries and preaching hundreds of services. He did great things for God. He never borrowed money. And the question is, how did he do all of these, cared for orphans? It is said there was an instance when George Miller, there was no food in, an, in the orphanage to feed the orphans. And he asked those who were caring for the orphans to put a pot on the fire and to boil water. And he went to pray. He said that George Miller had 50,000, above 50,000 prayer requests answered by God, which he documented. And so Mueller prayed while the pot was boiling with just water. And there came a knock on the, orphan door, on the orphanage door. And someone came with a load of groceries. And he was able to cook a meal and to care for these orphans. How did he accomplish so much? George Mueller was a man of tremendous faith. A man who prayed and a man who believed and trusted in God, and God did great things through him. Hebrews 11 lists the ancient heroes and heroines of faith. George Mueller stands in a list, an aged list of great men and women of faith. And the writer in Hebrews 11 has been taking us on this tour of these heroes and heroines of faith, beginning with Abel and Enoch and now and Abraham. Last time we considered Moses, the man whom God gave the law, as essentially a man of faith. His faith moved him to identify with the people of God, we argued. That he endured by faith, by seeing God who is invisible. That he depended upon God's provision in the Passover. But in this final section of the book of Hebrews 11, chapter 11, the writer in verses 32 to 40 will emphasize the triumph or the victories or the achievements of faith. 
I want us to consider first then that the faith that is victorious, the faith that is triumphant, the faith that triumphs undertakes great exploits and achieves great victories. That is the argument that you find being advanced at least in verses 32 to 35 of chapter 11. The faith that will overcome or triumphs is that faith which undertakes, ventures into great exploits and achieves great victories. In fact, before he talks about the victories or the achievements of faith, in verse 32, he's already been stressing this, going back to verse 29. Because in our text, it says, By faith, they, that is the Israelites, passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. You see the triumph, the victories of faith, beginning, of course, here with the Israelites. They were being pursued by the army, the Egyptian army. And they were caught, it would seem, between the devil and the deep blue sea. Because on one hand, they had themselves boxed in by an advancing Egyptian army. And then they had, on the other hand, the great Red Sea before them. It seems that wherever they turn, it is fraught with danger. And we know the miraculous story of how God parted the Red Sea. Two massive banks of water so that they were able by faith to venture into the Red Sea between these two banks of water and to cross over. That's faith. It took, it took faith and confidence in God to put a foot in the Red Sea. Some of us would rather fight the entire army of the Egyptian than go down into the Red Sea and be drowned. When the Egyptians, of course, tried to do the same, we know what happened, that they died. You see, the achievement of faith. By faith, he says, they pass through the Red Sea. And the writer then moves on. In fact, he, he jumps over the entire wilderness generation because they were not people of faith. They died in the wilderness because of faithlessness. He moves in showing the triumph of faith to the conquest of the land under Joshua. Notice he says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. This story, you know, we, we, we hear, we read this, but it often does not make much of an impact. But I want to suggest to you that this was one of the most bizarre military schemes that I've ever seen anywhere. Can you imagine they have been for 40 years waiting to enter the land? And when they entered the land... The first city they came to was Jericho, and Jericho was a wall city. Generally, those cities had two walls, an outer wall and an inner wall. And the children of Israel now come to Jericho. They had no ramparts. They had no bulwarks to tear down the city, no giant boulders to crash the walls. All they had were a few spears and a few swords. And how were they going to enter Jericho? Well, Joshua gave them the plan. He says to all the military leaders and the people, what we're going to do is this. We're going to march around the city for six days once. We're not going to make any noise. We're just going to march around the walls of the city. But on the seventh day, 
We're going to march around the city seven times. And then I'm going to ask the priest who have the horns and the trumpets to, to make a long blast, a long note on the trumpet. And then we're going to make a mighty shout. And the walls are going to come crashing down. If anybody could consider a military strategy, a plan to destroy or to break down a city, this surely would not be it. Joshua, I, I think the people would have listened to, some of them would have scratched their head and thought, you know, this is the wildest harebrained scheme that they've ever heard of taking a city. And they did exactly that. They marched around the city. On the seventh day, they marched around the city seven times. The trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and the wall tumbled. But here the writer says it was not because of the shout of the people. It was not because of the marching. It wasn't because of the blowing of the trumpet. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. You see, the triumph of faith. You see, the faith that triumphs undertakes great exploits and achieves great victory. He continues with this, the exploits, the triumphs of faith in verse 31. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Here he introduces the story of Rahab. Rahab was a Canaanite woman. More than that, she was a prostitute. And when the two spies sent by Joshua to spy out the land came to the city where she was, this woman had heard of the Israelites. She had heard two things about them. First of all, she had heard that God had dried up the Red Sea before them. Secondly, she also heard that, that God had defeated two kings, two significant kings of the Amorites. And this woman came to believe that the God of Israel was a living, the true and living God. She trusted the promise that he would deliver her when the city was destroyed by the Israelites, the invading Israelites. And she cast her lot in with the people of God because she believed in God. God was the object of our faith. And we know the story very well, told to us in Joshua 2, that indeed when the Israelites came into the land, they destroyed the city, but Rahab and her family were saved because of faith. We see the triumph, the victory of faith. You see the faith that undertakes great exploits and achieves great victory. In verse 32, the narrative, at least the, 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 the writer quickens the pace. He says, and what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and also of David and Samuel and the prophets. He says, I can't take time to describe the faith of all of these individuals, so I must summarize them. That's what he's saying. He's saying these are people of great faith. And he gives us six examples of faith. Four of them were judges. One of them was a king, David, and the other was a prophet. Well, we know how by faith Gideon overcame the Midianites. And the story of Gideon, you know, is found in Judges chapter 6. And that is, a, in, a, in a sense, is an amusing story. Because Gideon comes from a tribe that is not one of the greatest in, his, in Israel. He came from a clan that was not particularly distinguished in Manasseh. And one day he was threshing wheat. 
in a wine press, in a press where they make wine. He's threshing wheat in a wine press. He's doing it because he's afraid of the Midianites. He doesn't want them to find him. They won't expect him to thresh grain in a wine press. So he's doing it. He's afraid of them. And suddenly the angel of the Lord appeared to him and says, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. You courageous man. But Gideon is hiding. He must have looked around thinking, I'm sure the angel is talking about somebody else. This was a man who was very diffident, a man who was fearful. You know, I, I hear people say, you know, we should fleece God. Put a fleece before God. And I want, you to, I want to say to you, without bursting your theological bubble here, I just want to make you understand that fleecing was not an act of faith in the Bible. It was an act of doubt. This was a man that was not full of courage. But he became courageous. Because we hear how the Lord moved him to choose 300 men. And that the army of the Midianites were so vast, they were seen as the sand of the seashore. When they spread out before Israel, they were like sand on the seashore. And with 300 men, not armed with spears or sword, but armed with torches and clay jars, put to flight. This massive army. Why? How did Gideon do so? It was by faith. We hear the story of Barak, who served in the time of this prophetess, Deborah, who we're told that he went up against Jabin's army and they had a legendary commander, Sisera. They went up against one of the most versatile, robust army anywhere in the ancient world. This army had 900 iron chariots. And you need to understand that when the Bible talks about iron chariots in war, it's talking at that time about the best military equipment. Chariots would be equivalent to our tanks today. And here were the Israelites who were not skilled in battle, didn't have weaponry, anything of note to compare. And yet... Barak destroyed Sisera's army. He talked about Samson, this other judge, this great man of old, who vanquished the Philistines and destroyed the temple of Dagon. He talks about Jephthah, who conquered the Amorites. He speaks of David, who subdued all of his enemies and instituted the monarchy. All of these individuals, including Samuel, who interceded for the people of God, they triumphed by faith. And the writer will pursue this argument of the triumph of faith. For he goes on to make clear. He says, moving from the individuals to their actions, he says, who through faith, in verse 33, subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, that is, practice justice, for in this case, for example, of Solomon, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life. Again, he's speaking about the victories that faith have won. And he gives examples of, the, of some of these victories. He says that great leaders of the past, like David, subdued kingdoms, 
took territory under his ages, under his reign. Solomon practiced justice. We talk about those who stopped the mouths of lions. Well, he's referring there to Daniel. When Darius had Daniel put in the lions, then you would expect, if you didn't know the narrative, that he was going to be eaten by the lions. So how was, it, how was he able to survive in the den of a lion for a whole night without being eaten? The writer says it is by faith. He trusted in God and God closed, basically took away the appetite of the lions. He speaks of this victories of faith. He says some quenched fire. And that is referring to Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three Hebrew boys, who refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And that story of the three Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace is an amazing story. Because in Daniel chapter 3, we hear of these three Hebrew boys who said, we will not bow, whether we live or whether we die, we will not bow to this idol. And Nebuchadnezzar called for strong men from the army to bind these three young men in their clothing, in their hats, in their cloaks. He also asked them to heat the furnace seven times hotter than its ordinary heat. And when these strong men took these three Hebrew boys and pushed them into the fire, these strong men were killed because of the heat of the fire. And when Nebuchadnezzar watched, he was amazed because he says, are not these the three Hebrew boys that we have put in the fire? And behold, there is a fourth person. One, he says, like the Son of God. And they're walking about in the fire. And so when they were brought out, not one of them was injured. Not one of them was burned. Not first or second or third degree burning. Nothing. In fact, you read the story there in Daniel, they didn't even have the smell of smoke on their clothing. So you ask, how did they survive? How did they quench the fire? The writer says, it is by faith. He talks about those who escaped death by the sword. Others who in their weakness were strengthened, especially in battle. He says there were widows who received their dead back to life. So we're thinking then of the widow of Zarephath and the Shumanite woman whose sons were raised to life by Elijah and Elisha respectively. You see the writer is emphasizing the triumph of faith. The faith that triumphs, he says is a faith that attempts great exploits and receives great victories. God responds to the faith of these men. And on Mother's Day, it's important to know that God responds to the faith of women. We see the same thing with Sarah, who the Lord blessed with a son. Rahab, the Lord delivered her. These two women had their sons returned from death. You see, it is not just a faith of men, but of women. There is no partiality in God. And it's important that as godly mothers, that you too have faith in God. Because God rewards faith with victory and triumph. But the second thing that we ought to note about the text is that the faith that triumphs 
is a faith that perseveres in God despite suffering. See, the writer demonstrates that the faith that triumphs not only achieves great victories, but endures terrible suffering. And so you find in verse 35b, it says, and others were tortured. And when he talks about others, you see he's shifting now the subject from those who triumphed, who experienced great victories through faith, to those who endured suffering. And others, he says, were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourging, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and dens and caves of the earth. What is he saying? He wants us to understand that the faith that triumphs must not be perceived merely as a faith that experiences great victories, but the faith, the true triumphant faith, is a faith that will endure even in the midst of the most horrific suffering. And he lists some of the sufferings that the people of God endured. Some of them were tortured. They refused to give up their faith. They refused to deny their God. They were tortured. Others faced mockings and scourgings so that they were beaten for their faith. Some of them were stoned. Jeremiah himself was beaten. We know that Jeremiah died in Egypt stoned to death. He said some of these who retain their faith in God, who would not give up in suffering, were sawn in two. That's what Manasseh did to the prophet Isaiah. He cut him in two with a saw because he was faithful to God's word. And some who escape death face great deprivation. He says they were clothed in animal skin. They wore sheepskin and goatskin. He's talking about the poorest kind of clothing you can think of. Uncomfortable clothing, smelly clothing. These, he says, were persecuted. So much so that they had to flee to deserted places. They had to hide out in the mountains. In dens and caves, that is in the lair of animals, where animals took shelter. That's where they were living. They did all of this because they retained their integrity and their faith in God. They did not seek deliverance because they were looking for a greater resurrection. A resurrection that was not merely a resurrection in this physical world, but a resurrection unto eternal life. And even these, he says, these, he says, the world, these who were suffering, the world was not worthy of them. They were counted as the offscoring, as nothing in the world. But in the sight of God, because of their faith, they were valued highly by God, more valuable than all the worlds of sinners combined. Why? Because they persevered in faith in the midst of tremendous hardship. 
You see, God does not value men based on their family lineage or their social status or their financial resources. God values men and women on the basis of their relationship with him. And he confers great value and worth on those who belong to him, on those who trust in him, on those who remain committed to him, even though it costs. But my friends, the faith that triumphs is a faith that thirdly anticipates something better at the end of the age. The writer closes the chapter in verses 39 and 40. And he describes the faith that triumphs not only as that which achieves great victories, not only the faith which triumphs is that which perseveres in great suffering, but the faith that triumphs anticipates something better from the Lord. So in verse 39 he says, all these, these heroes and heroines of faith that he has listed in the verses before, all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. You see, the faith that triumphs is that which anticipates something better at the end of the age. The writer says that all of them, all of these great men and women of the past who suffered, who endured, did not attain to the promise, the promise that God had given them. And what is the promise that God had given to them? Well, it was the promise of the eternal inheritance. It is the promise of consummation, the promise of glorification. Now they... They, they did receive, as we see in verse 33, fulfillment of some individual promises. As I mentioned before, Abraham and Sarah received the son. Rahab was speared. God fulfilled individual promises. But the promise, the promise of that eternal inheritance, they never received that while in this life. And the writer says the reason they did not receive this in, in eternal inheritance, this promise of God, was not because of their fault, but rather because God in his wise and gracious providence had determined that there was something better for us, something better which he now describes as perfection. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. He's saying that the reason that the Old Testament saints in this life did not receive the eternal inheritance, it is because God had a plan for us. His plan was that the Old Testament saints should not be perfected apart from us. That all of God's people in all the ages should receive consummate bliss, should receive eschatological salvation together. Now, he's not saying anything about those who have gone into heaven. But I want you to understand that even those in heaven have not yet arrived at perfection. You cannot read Revelation without hearing the souls of those who are martyred crying under the altar, Lord, how long? They're still waiting for a final vindication when God judges the wicked and vindicates them before his throne. 
In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we know that perfection is still ahead because the writer tells us that our Lord Jesus Christ will descend from heaven with a great shout and that the dead in Christ will be raised and those who are alive will be caught up together in the air with him and so they will be forever with the Lord. You see, those who are dead and are in heaven have not yet received that final consummate perfection because they are still disembodied. They still have not received the new body. They have not been raised. They have not arrived at this final perfection. And he says the reason that they did not arrive at perfection here on earth is because God delayed it so that he may grant it to us, that final resurrection, that eschatological salvation, that those saints of old and those today and those of all the ages might be raised together and perfected together. You see, the saints of old, they kept looking, but the promise of that eternal rest, the promise of that eternal perfection was not fulfilled in this life because God delayed it so that they may not be perfected without us, that God's people may be united and consummated together. There are a number of things that we must draw from this passage on faith. And we would do well to recognize first that God has ordained that you and I should overcome and know victory in this world through faith. You could go into any bookstore, chapters or whatever, and look at the titles of books on success. And you will find in those books various recipes in terms of how to succeed. If you are at work, you are told you, you've got to make sure that you have your own niche. That you know more on, than those around you. That you make yourself indispensable. If you want to do well financially, you're told to invest wisely. There are many schemes and remedies for success in this life. But when you ask the writer of Hebrews, he says the means to success, spiritual success, is by faith. And he reminds us that it is by faith that the ancient heroes overcame and triumphed and saw great victories. The New Testament pursues this line because the Apostle John says, for whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. It is by faith that we know victory. It is by faith that we receive every blessing. It is by faith that we receive the blessing of salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith. We are justified by faith. We receive salvation not by working, but by resting upon Christ, by looking simply and directly to him, by recognizing that he came into the world, he became a man, he lived a perfect life, and he died and paid for our sins. And those who trust in him are saved. Salvation is never by works, but by faith alone. But the life of sanctification, the life of holiness, is still a life lived by faith. We overcome sin. We overcome the devil. We overcome the world. Not by depending upon our own meager and non-existent resources, but by depending upon God by faith. Our enjoyment of communion with God 
is a matter of faith. Because Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 3 that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. We enjoy our relationship with Christ by faith. And the labor that we perform, the works we do, if we ever see success, it is by faith. So this passage is important because it, it, it offers at least three correctives. First of all, it offers a corrective to defeatism. The defeatist mentality. Defeatism. See, there are those, there are those in the first century who felt that they were bombarded. They were outgunned, outmuscled by the world. They were thinking, you know, if you can't beat them, well, just join them. They had lost hope. They had no real expectation. They had been cowed by a spirit of defeatism. It reminds me of the children of Israel in captivity. You read in Ezekiel chapter 37 when the Lord says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? Ezekiel was wise. He didn't, he didn't commit himself too much. He adopted a sanctified agnosticism. Lord, you know. Can these bones live? Lord, you know. means I don't know, Lord, but you know. You see, the picture there was desperate. The state of Israel was like dry bones, corpses that were left out in the open and their bones were white and bleached. The nation had come to its end. There was no deliverance. Can these bones live? And the answer of Israel is simply, was simply this we see in Ezekiel 37. It is those who said, our hope is lost and we are cut off. Our bones are dry, they said. Our hope is lost and we are cut off. They, they said there is no hope. And when you look today at the state of the church, when you look at the state of Christianity in the West, when you look at society which is becoming coarser and coarser and more ungodly, when you look at our own lives where sin seems to take root, we can, like Israel of old, cry out our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we are cut off. But this passage reminds us that we are not to give in to defeatism. We are not to give in to despair. We are to trust. Because the God we serve is a God who does impossible things. And when the world says it is impossible, faith says all things are possible with God. But there is nothing difficult for him. And you see, if we want to see the church of God advance, see sinners saved, we shouldn't be saying our hope is lost and we are cut off. We shouldn't be saying our bones are dry. We are to attempt great things for God. And we are to expect great things for God. You see, the church will never move forward if we think that nothing will happen. If we think that God will not bear the heavens and come down. We are to have big visions and big dreams. We are to test God by putting big things before him. 
We had to say, God, you are able to do the impossible in my life, in my family, in my nation. We need a new brand of Christian living. A Christianity that is courageous. A Christianity which is optimistic because we have a great God. A God for whom nothing is impossible. A God who is able to deliver with many or with few. A God who says the battle is the Lord. It's not your battle, it's not my battle, it's the Lord's battle. Do you want to see your relatives saved? Do you want to see your church prosper? Do you want to see the enclaves of sin in your life broken, the addiction break, broken? You need to look to God who can do the impossible. And this story, this story that we have here of men of faith, what is extraordinary about them is they were ordinary people. There were people, men and women of like passion. One of them was a prostitute. Another one of them, David, was a murderer and adulterer. Samson was an immoral man in certain regards because he had his dalliances with Delilah. Jephthah was rash. He made a foolish vow. Barak cowered behind Deborah the prophetess. These were people who were full of flaws and weaknesses. And yet God is able to use earthen vessels, clay jars, weak, struggling, sinful people to do great and mighty things. And he does it because those who trust in the Lord will never be put to shame. My friends, when you see mountains before you, when you see battles that are too fierce for you to fight, when you come to a brick wall and you think there's no way around it, you are to mount over it by faith. You are to scale the mountains that have risen up in your life by faith in God who is sovereign and supreme, who has all power and all might and able to grant you the victory. But not only must you realize then that God has ordained that we triumph by faith, we must imitate those who triumph through suffering. You see, this passage not only safeguards against defeatism, it safeguards against triumphalism. And by triumphalism, I'm talking about that spirit of boasting, that spirit of excessive exaltation in success and in achievement. And in a sense, you know, the spirit of triumphalism is very much alive and well in our society, especially within Christian, some Christian circles. You see, there are those who will tell you that if you are a person of faith, you truly believe in God, you should be knowing continual victories. You should have continual miracles. You should have healing whenever you are sick. You should never really be sick. You should have financial success. And if you don't enjoy healing, and if you don't enjoy this blessing, then there's something wrong with you. They have a triumphal spirit. A constant victory, but this text shows us that true faith, triumphant faith, is not only seen in glamorous, phenomenal victories, but it is seen in the drudgery and hardship of suffering. True faith, victorious faith, is not always glamorous, but it is a faith that is marked by resilience 
You see, victorious faith is a faith which latches onto God and does not let go. Victorious faith is a faith that when you bend it and when you, when you strain it, it only becomes stronger and stronger. What do you find? You find the saints. Some of them were killed. They were persecuted. They lived like wild animals in deserted places. They were wearing the worst of clothing. They had very little to eat, but they kept on believing. They kept on trusting. Why? Because they know that this world is passing away, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And you and I must not become cynical and bitter when we are treated unjustly. You see, the people to whom he wrote had their properties taken away. They were scourged. They were beaten up. They were maligned. And he's saying, listen, true faith receives great victories, but true faith endures. It stays there. It hangs in there by trusting in God. Because, you see, nothing in this world, not tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ. You have to hold on in faith because God will not abandon you and he will not allow anything to take you away from his love. But thirdly, my friends, if you are to persevere in faith, you must know that perseverance in faith requires that you see and anticipate something better. You see, the believers of old, they were looking forward, they were looking ahead to an eternal city, a city with foundation. The writer says they were not perfected because God has something better. And how are you to live by faith? How are you to persevere in faith? You must be those who look ahead. And that is why I believe this passage is not only a corrective to defeatism and triumphalism, but it is also a corrective to existentialism, the the tendency to be focused with life here and now, existence in this world. These people who endured great suffering, who did great exploits, they kept looking ahead for something better. And the Bible says that God has reserved something better. So when you look at your life, you think, well, I haven't really achieved what I should achieve. I am not married. I don't have a spouse. I don't have children. I don't have the career that I should have. I am a failure. The way, my friends, to overcome is by faith to look at Christ and to recognize that God has something better in store for you, that he has something better that you can never receive in this world. He has given you a better mediator. He has given you a better covenant. He has given you a better possession. And all of this has come by the better sacrifice of Christ. And therefore, because Christ offered a better sacrifice, there is a better resurrection, an eschatological salvation yet to come. Listen, as you live this Christian life, you must live it with the notion in mind that better lies ahead. That whatever you have now and whatever you face, whatever you don't have, better lies ahead in Christ. May God help you to live for that better life which is to come for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we pray that you'll give us a victorious faith, a faith that will not shrink, a faith that will not deny you in the midst of hardship. But you have promised that those who lean upon you, who cast themselves upon you, you will deliver. And we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith. 
And through faith, we ask that you would give us great victories and progress. That your name may be honored in this city, in this church. We pray that we might know victory in our own lives. See your mighty hand of working by trusting in you. And help us when all around us is dark. That we will not say our bones are dry, our hope is cut off, our hope is lost and we are cut off. But that we would look by faith to the better which is to come. Sanctify these words to our heart. Fill your people with joy and confidence. Grant us, we pray, in this world of declining morals and increasing ungodliness, give us a faith that triumphs, a faith that is latched to Christ. We pray that you may bless this word, sanctify it to our hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen.